Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What would having a better perspective mean to us? Would it allow us to see little problems for what they are, little, or big challenges for what they are? Ben Feller is a former award-winning Chief White House correspondent for the Associated Press. A journalist for 20 years, Ben spent many years questioning and covering Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, gaining perspective like no other. Through his experiences in working within the White House, Ben discusses how this unique perspective allowed him to see life through different lenses. It was a journey that allowed him to take the concept of big problems, little problems, and transition into a new career, helping his clients tell their stories. Ben talks openly about finding himself at yet another crossroads, as many of us do during our life journey. Now he's writing about his personal passion, being a dad. Ben's forthcoming book is the story of how a dad teaches his son to solve the daily challenges of life, and in turn, the surprising ways in which a child can teach a grown-up to remember what is important too. As one life transition leads to another, Ben's story helps remind us that this life journey is a tale about perspective, patience, and the ability to conquer frustration, no matter the problem. Please enjoy my conversation with Ben Feller. So Ben Feller, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Paul, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Really looking forward to this. Yeah. And we were introduced just like within a week or two weeks ago by Bridget Schulte, um, who is an author that I've been following that I've been trying to get on the podcast. And she's like, uh, I can't be there, but you need to talk to Ben. And so I'm, uh, I'm grateful to, to Bridget that uh, she was able to connect us and really looking forward to our conversation because I think we're going to hit on a lot of um, topics that are really pertinent to um, our audience and a lot of the, the families that I work with at Tama from a life transition standpoint, because you're certainly in the throes of a couple of them that we'll, that we'll get into. So um, right. glad to have great. you. Um, I think the best place to start is to walk our audience through your background. For those that may not know you, um, talk about your background and, and how you arrived in the field of journalism, which may, some people may know you of because of your um, AP position at the White House. Sure, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I've really had two big chapters to, to my life. And the one that you're asking about has taken up the biggest part. And that's my journalism role. Uh, so I uh, was a reporter for 20 years, um, started out at a small newspaper uh, in State College, Pennsylvania, where I grew up uh, being a Penn State kid um, and um, moved up to a, another medium sized newspaper in North Carolina. And then a a bigger one in Tampa, Florida. And for my first 10 years, I was really enjoying the journalism life, um, kind of following jobs where they took me and thinking 
I can live anywhere. I can do this anywhere. I identify myself as a journalist. Um, didn't love living in Florida as much as I realized, as I thought I would. I was uh, more of a Northeastern guy. <laughs> so uh, after a couple of years of really working hard there and enjoying it and making good friends, I decided to head back north and um, landed in Washington, D.C., which, which I consider north compared to Florida, um, and, and landed on the national staff of the Associated Press covering education. Um, did that for four years, traveling around the country, learning both the policy and politics of Washington, D.C., but also inside classroom trend stories, which I love to do across the country. And then um, I sort of outgrew that role and asked for something different, and the AP put me on the White House beat. And that was, I was in my mid-30s and really uh, saw that as a life changer, and it was. I covered uh, the last two years of President George W. Bush, and they kept me on the team as a leader of the team to help uh, cover President Barack Obama. And uh, during that last uh, time, Paul, the uh, person who was running the, the operation left the job and I became the chief White House correspondent. And so that was um, a marvelous life experience for me, took me from, uh, you know, up to about age 40 and um, loved, really loved every bit of it. It became uh, all consuming. And I was going through, in my mind, a life transition that caught up to me. So I decided to leave it and go into business, which we can talk about. Um, but it really was, is and was a defining part of my life. So when I'm envisioning watching one of those uh, presidential press conferences um, and you have that sea of reporters out there, you were, you, were, you were that. You were the main guy for the AP sitting out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. For a lot of those, I was, we had a rotation, so it wasn't always me, but on the big moments when I was chief correspondent, it was very much a part of the job to have to sit in the front seat uh, in the first row. And by tradition, typically AP got the first question. So the, uh, the president would finish, you know, his opening statement and then often say, uh, okay, we're going to take a couple questions. Uh, let's turn to, let's see here, Ben Feller, the AP. And, you know, that was just one of those moments where all of the trappings of the beat got very small, you know, because you have uh, all of these security checks and all of these um, moments that people see on TV, the entourage, the motorcade. Um, but in those moments, it's just you and the president. And, you know, you're asking anything in the world that you want to ask, um, but it better be good and it better be sharp and it better elicit news. If you find yourself getting an answer that's sort of a repeat of something he said before, you feel like you've lost the moment and you could hear that, you know, your editor in your head saying that wasn't a great question. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, it was really, um, it was, it didn't feel uh, glamorous. It felt like um, the, a really important, stressful job to get that moment. Right. But now that I've been removed from it, of course, I appreciate how um, privileged that access was. And, and that was actually going to be my next question is that seems like a really, on one hand, very glamorous job. Um, but on the other hand, very stressful as well. Like I, I think about like we're, you know, the Super Bowl's a week away. And I think about how easily like a, I'll throw out a name, like a Mike Trico at NBC. Cause he's, I'm here in Metro Detroit and I know he's a native Ann Arbor uh, person, how easy those broadcasters make it and, right. and to call the games and to interview these, you know, incredible athletes, you know, multimillionaire. And I'm like, on the other hand, like that could be really overwhelming at the same time. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're supposed to, I, I was a, I was a writer. So a print guy in the, in the vernacular. So I was on TV in those moments you talked about, and I did some TV work. Um, but 
my job was basically focused on the reporting and, and the writing, not so much, you know, being on television, but yeah, tremendous stress in those moments The the harder ones actually were um, going into the Oval Office when the president had, say, another uh, visiting president in from, you know, uh, from Europe. And you had the opportunity or the potential opportunity to ask him a question. So you walked in, you had to listen to everything that he was saying, listen to what the, the foreign leader was saying, take notes. If they made news, which they often did at that time, I would have to, on my phone, dictate a news alert to my colleagues who were in our booth in the West Wing so they could get out the news while he's talking and also still listening to what he's saying next and be prepared to ask a question because sometimes he would take one, but other times you would get a line of sight and catch eye contact. And if you got one, you could shout one and get a, get a question in. And, you know, all the while you're jostling with other people, cameraman, boom mics, you know, the, the handlers are trying to get you out of there behind you is the resolute desk. You know, you can't knock over a glass of water. Like all of those things are happening. And the, the kicker to all of it is you can never, ever be wrong. You can't have a comma wrong. You can't mishear a word, you know. So that's the stress of, you know, getting it out, getting it right, asking the right question and being first and not making any mistakes. And so I always in the in the teaching I've done about journalism, whether it's to my communication clients or as a mentor, you know, always put accuracy first, always put accuracy first. But but those moments where, you know, they'd say, OK, come on in. You walk in the colonnade. I would always feel this no matter how often I did it, this here we go, you know. <laughs> And, um, you know, it is, boy, even just talking about it brings back the stress. <laughs> just, just listening to you talk about it, Ben, I'm getting like uh, some sense of stress or emotion about it. Like, how, so how do you, how did you deal with that, that level of stress? Well, <clears throat> you know, a lot of it comes with um, preparation. So, you know, when I, was chosen for the White House beat, it was because I had filled in on a couple of trips covering the president, um, traveling on Air Force One. One was actually a trip that I made sense for my beat because I was covering education at the time and it was an education trip. But another one, uh, I was filling in for a reporter who was off that day and things went sideways and the president decided to have a rare news conference on the plane on Air Force One on the way home. And, you know, preparation, w- you know, what's happening today if, if this comes up, what would I ask if he answers X? How am I going to respond? Always running the scenarios through my head. And so I remember the, the young aide came to the back of Air Force One where, where the press sits. And he said, I want you, 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 you and you come with me. And we walked through the belly of the plane and, you know, past the Secret Service and past the aides. And we went into this conference room where the president, this was when President Bush was in office. And I remember this guy from the Washington Post saying, hey, hey, to me. And, and I was filling in. I didn't even really know anybody. And he's like, I'm like, what? You know, I'm trying to focus. He's like, do you have any paper? I'm like, yeah, I think you don't have paper. Like, like, <laughs> like, I might mess up this moment, but I have paper, you know. And, you know, so that went well. And that's why they, the bosses of the AP knew, OK, this guy in, you know, can have poise in the moment. And um, so it's preparation. So that scene I gave you in the Oval Office, the, the press conferences, yeah, they can stop your heart for sure. But you, you just prepare all the time and that can help you deal with the stress because, you know, there's only so many things you can ask and there's only so many ways those moments can go. Um, and that's where I would that's where I would find my peace, you know. Um, but, yeah, if you don't want to carry that kind of responsibility around, then you can't be in that job. You just can't. You can't have it both ways. 
you can't have the access and the notoriety and not the pressure. Well, I, ironically, in prep for our conversation, I was listening to you on a, on a previous podcast and you, you had this conversation with, with that podcast host about how when you were in that role and you'd see these hard decisions getting made, how obviously those decisions pale in comparison to you know, other life decisions that may be going on in your own personal life. Walk us through like what, what that was like to be on that, on that edge where you saw like all these critical decisions being made. And then it's like, well, how does that affect my life? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, it was relevant then and it is today. The better we have perspective all the time and not just in these major moments, the, the more sane our lives can be. Um, you know how this is, Paul, when something um, tragic happens, uh, something jarring happens, you get perspective. You're like, okay, all of a sudden my spilled coffee today wasn't that big of a deal. But that usually happens when there's some precipitating event. What if you had perspective all the time? You know, you could just sort of breathe easier and, and get through these challenging moments. And so in the White House, it was pretty easy to have perspective all the time because there were big moments all the time. Um, and it wasn't like we were in the room for a lot of those. We often caught the news as, you know, as it was being announced, or we would make the news by how we asked the questions. Um, but there were certainly moments of, you know, flying on a secret trip to Afghanistan to on a trip that would, that would affect the fate of the war. Um, seeing the president grieving with families, uh, whose children had been, you know, killed in a mass shooting, uh, or whose homes had been lost in a wildfire. Um, or, you know, even just sort of saying goodbye to people who had served in the White House and, you know, the, the toll it had taken on those folks and, you know, not seeing their, their families and those little moments where, okay, it's not just a staff job. They've given a lot. You see the weight of these moments and those decisions are happening every day. And so um, I always tried to respect those. It wasn't just, is this a big story uh, or not? It was, you know, the significance and the perspective of it. And and I would leave the White House at night and I would really think of two things going down the driveway. One, it's, it's incredibly competitive. Uh, me versus the White House in terms of getting information and me versus the competition. And so I would think, who won today? Who won the battle today? And because that's just part of the job and part of who I am. And the other thing I would think of is like, this place is, this place is, is amazing and it's time to leave the gates and just go breathe. And it was funny because I would shut the go past the Secret Service and shut the gate and it clanged shut and you're out on Pennsylvania Avenue. And the sound that that makes would catch people's attentions. And they look at me coming through and they had this look in their eye like, are you, are you somebody we should know? Right. You know, like I'm just walking by to go to Old Ebbets Grill and you hear come, you're coming out of the West Wing. Should I know you? And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> I'm a reporter who covers the people you should know. But just the look in their eyes gave me perspective because of the privilege of getting to work in there every day, you know? And so that, that's how I would handle that. And I would try to carry that through to, you know, the rest of that chapter and the one that came after. So let me, let me back up because in, in doing some, some prep work on our conversation um, and you mentioned this already with your background, how did you get into writing about education and specifically what, what were your major topics or you know, around education? Yeah, well, there's really two parts of that answer. The first is that a lot of journalists in their young years 
fall into a, a particular subject matter expertise or focus because that's the job that's open. It really is nothing more uh, complicated than that. And so when I uh, f- first got into reporting full time, you know, maybe as a 21 or 22 year old, I covered everything because uh, that's what you do at a local paper. Um, but one of the core beats, the beats that people care about uh, are their schools and um, really understanding the school boards, the policies, the politics, the money, school closures, all of those things, bullying policies, you know, those things matter to people. And so it was an interesting beat to have. And once you, once you understand it, you know, you can get into a flow. And so then my, um, my, as my career went on, the next newspaper I joined which had more sophistication, more gravitas, more readers, you know, bigger salary, they would hire you often uh, for the next education job based on what you did. And so it sort of built that way. Um, And by the time I got to Florida, I was covering um, higher education, which also played to a strength because I come from that background. Um, You know, my whole family is basically, you know, rooted in, in academia and higher education, having grown up in Penn State and Penn State community. And so that's how the, the line went. Um, the, uh, the other part to it, Paul, is that I just love writing about stories that affect people. And so even on those beats, it was like one thing to cover votes and cover meetings, but I would try to make the, the education beat about real lives and see it through the audience's perspective. What would they care about? And so that moved me from the education rooms uh, and the city halls to the classrooms. And I would pick a topic that was relevant to whether it's the four day class week or the demise of the school counselor um, or, you know, civics education. And I would go into classrooms and find ways to bring it to life. And I enjoyed that. You know, that just made the stories more fun. And just thinking about this, I know that you have a, a son. To me, I would I would find it very hard not to get really emotional about all those topics you just listed. And even just listening to you, I started getting emotional about it because, you know, as, as the audience knows, I have a, le- a set of 11-year-old triplets and a nine-year-old. And um, during COVID, I, I mean, educate for parents, I think education is always a hot topic. But over these last two years with COVID, this thing has been, you know, a raging, you know, forest fire, if you will. And I, I have some degree of empathy for these, these uh, people that are on school boards because the job that they had previously before COVID was much different than, than the job they oh. experienced during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, and some of the clips that we see of those um, tense moments, um, those egregious moments between parents and school board members about COVIDs and policies, it's, it's remarkable. And then some of it is disheartening. Listen, when I covered those issues I named, I wasn't a parent yet. So that was earlier in my life, but I, I came into it with the perspective that um, the reader should care about these stories, even if they aren't a parent, because it also matters to them if they pay taxes, because the, so much of this, so much of a, a local budget is focused around um, school debates and where the money should go. And a lot of money goes uh, into those capital programs. Um, you know, they should also care about it if they care about, um, you know, the direction of the economy um, or if, you know, if they're going to have a family and they want to know where the best schools are. So there's I would always think about the ways in which it wasn't a niche story. 
and and try to broaden it out. And oftentimes those points in my mind would make their way into um, the story, what journalists will call the nut graph, which is jargon for the, you know, here's the why you should care paragraph. You know, the vote on Tuesday has implications, not just for the current fourth graders and their siblings, you know, but for any parent and taxpayer, you know, in a 400,000 person county, you know, let alone the, the people who are, um, you know, seeking work here over the next 10 years. Like, okay, that affects a lot of people. I, you've made me care now. Now let's get back to what's happening. And, um, and, you know, so certainly there are a lot of education reporters who do have kids and have gone through the PTA meetings and the confusing town halls and the rezonings and all those things. And, and let alone the COVID policies of today. And so those reporters are even more informed because they're living it, not just covering it. So you had mentioned uh, the word transition. And before we hit record, you know, we were talking about how the fascinating, interesting dynamics of what this podcast has turned into is a conversations with people around their life transitions and their story. Um, I wasn't quite sure like what the direction was going to be when I started this over a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. Um, but I'm really glad that it's taken the direction it has because obviously people know what I do for a living. I'm a, I'm a financial planner. I'm a wealth advisor. I work with, with families and, and, and their kids. And, but what really gets people going are there these stories that, that we have on this show and these conversations and it, it really inspires a lot of people. And so you talked about this transition from uh, the White House into um, uh, business. But one of the major transitions that you're going through now, or I should, I should say probably have been, is that you're coming out with a new children's book that you've written. Walk us through what that transition was like. How did you go about making the decision that you were going to write this book. And then obviously tell us a little bit about what the book is. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's, um, it's an idea I have, I've had in mind for a while. And like a lot of writers, no matter where they are in their careers, they have books in their mind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The challenge is to actually write them and get them published. And so um, the, the passion of my life is, is raising my son and uh, who's, name is Sam and he is 10. And um, we had a really fun dynamic when he was younger in which I would um, get him to try to calm down when a small challenge felt overwhelming to him. And look, it happens to a lot of kids. Um, happens to a lot of adults. <laughs> it happens to a lot of adults. And so, you know, whether it was finding something that was missing, how do you deal with something you forgot to bring to school? You know, and and I would try to get him to understand that it wasn't that big of a deal. And once you understand that, we'll find it later. We'll find another one. We'll stop on the way to school. You can instantly change your mood. And once you do that, the rest of your day is set. And if you don't do that, the rest of your day can go south. So to me, that is a big deal. Is how do you deal with those little moments and catch and get into a pattern of dealing with with um, having patience and perspective. And you know, I, I started to see him get frustrated about things, and I would say, "Don't get frustrated." And I could tell he didn't even know what I meant let alone that I wasn't really giving him a coping mechanism. And so I started to get into a pattern of getting on down to one knee. So we were sort of eye level and take a few deep breaths to calm him down. And then we would talk about it and fix whatever the thing was like zipping his coat. And I'd say, okay, you feel better? Yeah. Is that a big problem or a little problem? 
He's like, I don't, I don't know the difference. Well, a little problem is one where once you fix it, it's really not that big of a deal. You don't have to worry about it. You can go about your day. He's like, okay, I guess that was a little problem. And so that was just something that we did. And then one day when I was very frustrated and I used colorful language that I wouldn't say on your family-friendly podcast <laughs> for my son, he said, daddy, don't get frustrated. Big problem or a little problem. He wanted me oh. to be at peace and calm down. And he, and he, whether he meant to or not, he also showed me that he had been listening and absorbing and practicing what we were living. And that was the moment when I'm like, this has to be captured. It was just so, so beautiful. And so that's the name of the book, Big Problems, Little Problems. It follows that, that pattern of the son teaching the, uh, the, the dad teaching the son, I should say, the lessons of frustration, perspective, and patience, and then the son uh, turning it around and they, they figure out life's challenges together. And, um, you know, I, I just decided to do it for real during the pandemic. Frankly, when I was sitting here in my Brooklyn apartment, working on my um, my communication clients as a as an entrepreneur in business, but really wanting to do this this children's book project and thinking like you got to do this, Ben. You have to find a way to do it. So I worked with a really helpful partner, and then I found publishers who were still doing their work in a pandemic, which was a much smaller list of places because it hit the industry hard. And I found one. All you need to do is find one great place uh, called Tilbury House Publishing in Maine. And um, that was two years ago, and it's just about to, to come to market. So I'm really excited. So is the, is the book geared towards fathers like us to read to their kids, or is it um, for the kids themselves? Or like, how does that? I, I genuinely feel that this book would be enjoyable and, and helpful to any family with young kids. Um, um, no, you know, no matter what the, the status of the, the relationship is, single family, traditional family, a traditional family, um, if you're raising young kids, I think it would be a, a fun and helpful read. Um, what makes it particularly distinctive, I think, is I didn't believe that, and I've since heard this to be true, that there aren't as many stories like this that are told from the father's perspective. And it's a father-son story. So that adds, I think, a a layer to it, which is, of course, um, I'd love it if if anybody found the story interesting. But I think it's particularly relevant um, to dads to see, to honor the role that dads play in this problem solving. And, And I know a lot of dads who do. I also think um, your point is, was well taken. It's also for parents. Let's have some perspective here. You know, I basically call myself out in the book for losing perspective when Sam knocks over my coffee and spills it on my work papers because he's, he's in the act of showing me how proud he is that he found his cape. And I'm like, yeah, but what's important is now my day is going to be ruined. And he's like, it's really not going to be ruined. And he walks me through why. And we figure out the problem together. And so in that sense, it's also for adults. And, and I, hope, I hope people feel that when they read it. Well, just listening to you talk about it, it's like tugging at my heart right now because <laughs> I, with, with four we'll kids. We'll get your copy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with four kids, I get that opportunity almost. Well, not almost. I get that opportunity daily. And it's something that, you know, I struggled with before I was a father. And, and now that I am just being able to have that composure and not get frustrated. And to your point, it's a great title. Like this is a big problem or little problem. And I remember one of my boys a few weeks ago, 
like I had walked him through something I was talking to my therapist about when, when it comes to like, when I'm ready to like pounce and yell at them for something is yeah, it's, it's great to take a, it's a step or take a breath, but it's even better to take a physical step back because that physical step back is that trigger to say, okay, you need to, to stop and, and think about this big problem, little problem. And it, it was like a, a week, probably less than a week after that, we were, we were about ready to go to, go to war on something. And right. he said that to me. He's like, dad, really? just take a deep breath. Cause I, I, I laid it out to them, all four of them, like, okay, this is what I need to start working on. And I need you for to help hold me accountable. So when dad's about ready right. to go off the rails, right. I need your help. And the fact that like with your son, Sam, he, Brady was listening, Aiden was listening. And, and that was like, that was incredible. That's a great, that's a great story. And I love the physical step back. It's a great tip, you know, and look, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And, and the idea of uh, big problems, little problems, and the fact that you and other friends of mine have used a version of that, if not that phrase in their homes, that's not, I think the novelty it's, it's the, it's the resonance and the capturing of it and saying, you know, let's remember that we can all do this and let's, let's turn this into a regular conversation we could have. And so um, you, you know, a friend of mine called me and said, I got to tell you the story. And, and his young son did this for his even younger daughter. Um, or maybe it was the other way around. I can't remember, but it was, it was just this beautiful story about, um, how it basically said, you know, big problem, little problem. And if those kids didn't even know I was writing a book about it. And so it's like, okay, if this is happening in homes across the country, then, you know, let's, let's capture it and really have it resonate. So people can nod along. And if you haven't thought of this, and, you know, you feel like, wow, every day we tussle over things that really aren't that important. How do I fix this? Well, let's try this. You know, maybe you read it at night and say, what could you do better? What could I do better? You know, because it is the parent's responsibility to bring this patience and perspective. But kids can be so wise. They, that's the thing that I've learned about this with a lot of love is that Sam really doesn't like to see me frustrated. Right. He doesn't like to see it. He doesn't want to see his dad upset. And so his instincts now are to do something about it. And he has the tools to do something about it. Right. That is incredibly insightful, Ben, because I, like my kids have gotten to the point now where they will, they will tell me like, we don't want to hear you yell anymore. Like we are tired of you yelling at us. And yeah. I, and I feel that. And I'm like, I don't want to yell at you either, but I haven't been able to uh, help equip them with the tools. So like I'm in, I'm really excited about getting my hands on this book and, and seeing, you know, putting it to, to uh, use firsthand. But I, in having this conversation, I didn't think about this in terms of, is this a big problem or a little problem? Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to start try, trying that probably tonight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful connection that like that alone is worth it for me in, in, in chatting with you for this podcast, because that's, that's really the joy that I get from this is the idea now that it's becoming real and we'll be in bookstores soon that, that people can use this, not just enjoy it and read it and find the charm in it, hopefully, but use it. And look, part of the book is the son asking the dad, once he understands what it feels like to be frustrated, he said, does do grownups get that way? You know? And I say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we get that way. You know, 
So think about how often people don't like when somebody tells them to calm down. Oh, that's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is calm down. Now, often it is not said condescendingly, although sometimes it is, or it certainly <laughs> often comes across that way. It's like, listen, what they mean is let's start by calming down so we can solve the problem. Not, you know, I'm dictating to you be calmer because you're emotional and sort of saying, like, let's calm down. So me doing that, my doing that for Sam wouldn't have been helpful. So I started with a physical activity, like your step back was my getting on one knee. Like we're in this together. I, I'm not dictating to you. Okay. Now let's take three deep breaths. And by the end of the third one, you're physically calmer. Even if you still yeah. have tears. Inside. Now, where are we? We're calmer together and we're on the same level, even if I haven't described it that way. Now it's a thing. Well, let me show you how to do that. Okay. Now you do it. Okay. And then you're waiting for this next 10 minutes of drama. And it's like, no, we're done. Like the, the quick solve of the problem makes it feel smaller and like, okay, now we can leave. It's like, that was it. Yeah. See, it, it physically feels like a little problem. All right, let's go have some fun. Right. So then the next time it's like, all right, well, let's just make this easier. Um, I think the tools, the tools part helped because otherwise it could be the right communication, but it, it doesn't resonate. Cause it's like, I understand what you're saying, dad. Yeah. And I still feel like I'm all tied up. So your words aren't helping, you know, help me solve it. So the last topic I want to get into, which I think is going to be completely relevant for a lot of listeners is again, going back to this topic of transitions, like talk about the white house to business transition, transition to writing this book, but you're also going through a major life transition right now with your career that a lot of people are either facing or feeling. So why don't you walk us through where you're at with, with that? Give us a little background, if you don't mind, and, and sure. where that's going. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I mentioned earlier that I really have two chapters the way I think about my career. And the first was journalism that we talked about. The second is in storytelling in a different way, which is um, helping clients tell their own story. So for the last almost nine years after I left uh, the AP and the White House beat, I went to work at a communications firm called Mercury. And my job there had many different elements to it, but primarily I would help clients, whether they were leaders, individuals, companies, nonprofits, universities, help them figure out who they are, what they do, how they're different in what they do, and why people should care about any of that. Because outside audiences often don't care about what you're doing unless they can feel it affect their lives. And a lot of amazing people in places aren't um, as good at those things as you think they would be. They might be good at the product or the service that they're offering, but the distillation of what they do can be tricky because they work in a complicated field because they have too many people with opinions and it just turns into this soup. And so I you know, made a living in the second part of my career primarily in storytelling and, um, and identity projects. Um, the transition that you refer to is that I want to take both of my careers, my journalism career and my business storytelling career, and, and move into a different phase here, which will probably stay in the consulting space where I'm working on a lot of different projects and problems and challenges for different clients because I like the diversity of that. And frankly, I like some of the freedom of that as it fits my own life. Um, but the pandemic really challenged my own mental health, frankly in terms of how happy am I in my work, in my um, current environment? How happy am I in working from my apartment, not for two months, but for two years, right? 
And, and, um, and do I want to take what I've been doing and broaden it out to have even more impact and work on a bigger diversity of projects or to learn more from other people inside or outside communications who have done it differently? Because I'm sort of siloed right now. And after a couple of years of that, I don't like that feeling. Paul, I don't like that internal stagnation. So I'm challenging myself to go find a different place. It could go in different directions. This is, as we're talking today, it's a very fresh change. Um, but I'm really excited to see where it's going to go. And I think, you know, along those lines, a lot of people, like I just mentioned, are trying to figure things out. And I think pre-COVID, people were trying to figure things out. And I think COVID was a accelerant, if you will, that people are, it's now even more top of mind for people to consider. What what were you? What would you say was, if you can identify one or two like tipping points, if you will, that helped set you down this path? Because what I tend to encounter is people are afraid to take that first step because of the the unknown that's out there. You know, you've had a this this type of career for so long, but it's not really been fulfilling. Um, it certainly hasn't helped from a you know family standpoint support. Yeah, and it's a big struggle because we all have we still have our financial sure. you know responsibilities and taking care of our families, but yet you know we have to still take care of ourselves. And there's that internal struggle there. Yeah, look, I, I'd say start with an enormous caveat, which is it's so dependent upon those factors. If you know you're a provider. Um, and you know you've got financial obligations, um, and you your identity is driven by you know your ability to be a successful worker or contributor. Um, it can be hard to leave because you just don't have the choice. So I don't want to presume that everybody you know has the choice to do this. Um, in my situation, it's not like I have tremendous freedom to do this, but I have enough. I've created enough that I can do this. So the tipping points were twofold. Number one. Um, and I'll just add real quick into that. Yeah. That's where smart financial planning comes into play. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, it is, it is not uh, a coincidence that, uh, you know, based on your background and what you do, part of my decision to leave and, and explore here right in this period was built on conversations with financial planners several times. Even when I had it down, I had to double check because I had triple check. Cause like, I want to make sure I can do this. Yes, you can. Right. Then once you can do that, and then it's really an investment in yourself. I'm going to take some time and not have revenue for a little while and basically put it into my search so that I can be happier for the next several years. That is so worthy. So, you know, the tipping points were one, um, you know, we did so much like this by Zoom or whatever your platform is that eventually you, you know, I was looking at myself on one call. I'm like, I don't even, I don't feel engaged. I don't look engaged. I'm not bringing my best self. My value proposition for this client is not meeting my own expectations. I'm not happy doing this anymore. So what? what's, I don't feel like I even have a choice staying in this mode. It's not good for them. It's not good for me. It's not good for my company. And nobody's going to push me out of this box unless I do. I'm not even sure anybody else is recognizing it. You know, they might say, oh yeah, you did seem unhappy, but you know, that's what I learned. It's like, if you want to make this change, you have to hold up the mirror and do it yourself. And so there were enough of those moments. I, I sort of accepted 2020 as the mess that it was. But when they continue 2021, I'm like, I'm not doing a third year of this. Life's too short. The other, the other point, I wouldn't say it's a tipping point, but just maybe validation is that I did this once before. 
when I left journalism and moved into business, there was a gap there where I was actively searching and taking meetings and figuring this out. And it worked out really well. It's shaped the next almost decade. So when you've taken the leap and you've landed safely, you don't have to read nine books to say why it's okay or have those yeah. 14 questions with your financial planner. You could say, I trust myself. And you know what? Other people, they see the confidence and they're like, we trust your judgment. Well, Ben, I think that is a excellent uh, way to kind of wrap up our, our conversation. So let me get to the final question. Yes. Which is, what is the best thing about being a parent? You know, <clears throat> I just got to say that I've tried to build my decisions around the pursuit of happiness, happiness for my family, happiness for my friends, happiness for me. And I've started for, for many years now to, to view big life decisions through that prism, right? Is it going to make the people in my world and myself happier? And man, does being a dad make me happy. I mean, it just does. You know, I, I saw a couple of kids get off the subway here in New York City and walk up the steps to the school where my son goes and they weren't with their parent because the parent had decided, hey, the kids are old enough now that I don't have to leave the turnstile just to pay to come back in when they can go up the steps myself. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm going to go up anyway. You know why? Because I like walking him to the door. I like it. I still, and I'm, you know, he's going to outgrow that pretty soon, but I really enjoy the lunches, the meetings, all that stuff. And, and he sees it and man, does he bring it back? He brings it back in so many ways. He's not just sort of reflecting my love for him. He's an active participant in this with me and with his mom. And it's, it's the, it's just a source of happiness every day. I can't think of anything better. Well, that, that, uh, that is incredible. And I, I love asking people that question because the responses are so dynamic and so heartful or heartfelt. Uh, it's just amazing. So, so Ben, where can people, where's the best place for people to find you? Yes, sure. So you can find me, uh, you know, my social media, uh, LinkedIn, uh, is one place or, uh, on Instagram. Um, I actually have my own handle, which is Ben Feller NY, and I've created one for the book called big problems, little problems. So, uh, uh, a quick Google search or search on those platforms will find me soon. And as the, for the book itself, it's available now to pre-order wherever you like to get your books, you know, um, you'll, you'll probably find it there. And, uh, hopefully we'll do some touring around. If anybody's interested, who's listening to this and wants to know more about it, um, just find me and drop me a note and I'd love to talk to anybody. Well, I was, I was just going to ask that question as well, but so I'll make sure that we put a link, um, some show note links in to, um, how they can, you know, order, pre-order a copy of the book and then how to find you on social media. But Ben, this has been a great conversation. I'm, I'm really glad that, that Bridget made the introduction and uh, I'm sure that this is not going to be our only conversation. I look forward to many more to come. I look forward to all of those, Paul. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.